Okay. The topic for this evening is the life of Abba Ibn. Up until this point, uh, all the characters we've discussed have been people who might have been regarded as a hero by some and a villain by others for an extreme position in one direction or another. Abba Ibn, I would say, was regarded by nobody as a villain, at least not in the Jewish world. He was regarded by some as a great hero, a great spokesman of our people, and by others as the Kluger Nahr, the, 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 the brilliant fool. <laughs> and we'll get to who, who characterized him in that basically negative way. But uh, first off, his name wasn't Abba Ibn. He was born Aubrey Solomon in South Africa in 1915 to Alida and Avram Solomon. His father was ill, and they went to London for medical treatments, and Avram Solomon died just shortly before his son's first birthday in 1916. So, his mother, Alida, from the prominent Sachs family, Abibin was a cousin of Oliver Sachs, um, grew up in a fairly uh, well-to-do environment because his mother married a, a physician by the name of Eben, Dr. Eben. And so it was a comfortable upbringing, but an unpleasant upbringing emotionally and psychologically because he was sent off to live at boarding school. At one point was sent off to live in Belfast. Um, he wasn't at home because he wasn't necessarily wanted at home. And he never overcame that... Uh, this location and, and unpleasant experience of childhood. It uh, caused a bit of a rift in the family. He was sent off to St. Olaf's Academy, where he was such a great student that they told him at the age of seven, you don't have to take tests anymore. Uh, well, in those days, being sent to a Christian school was a common thing among the elite of British Jewry. And so, his life was a life of learning. His maternal grandfather was uh, d- devoted to the cause of Jewish studies and wanted his grandson to learn Hebrew and Talmud, not necessarily a re- as a religious Jew, but just as a learned Jew. And so until the age of 13, Aubrey Eben didn't have a spare moment to play ball as a kid because his grandfather was always on his case. If you're not studying Greek and Latin in St. Olaf's, you're going to study on the weekends Judaic subjects. When his grandfather died, he finally had a chance to listen to the ball game on the radio. Uh, but he loved books. He was a real nerd. And he loved language and had a great talent for language. Whether it was his native English, of which he was the best, up there with Winston Churchill, or Greek, Latin, French, German, and later Arabic and Persian, he knew languages. He was, had a great talent for picking them up. And he loved learning about the classics poetry, translating poetry into different languages. He was sent off to Cambridge. He was lucky to get a scholarship so that he could afford to go to Cambridge where he studied the classics and and linguistics. And he achieved a triple first. Since I'm not from England, I have no idea what a triple first is, but I guess it's like super duper magna cum laude. Um, And it's hardly ever achieved. He was a leading figure in the Cambridge Debate Society where he became known to the general public as someone who could have a great future in either politics as a parliamentarian or as a diplomat, someone who could convince the other side of the righteousness of his argument. As we'll see, 
Sometimes he had to convince other people of the righteousness of an argument that even he didn't really believe in. Sometimes he functioned more as a lawyer than as a diplomat. Well, 1938, he becomes a, a reader or a quasi-professor at Cambridge, Pembroke College, and he sees his future in the world of academia, or possibly maybe as a labor parliamentarian in the House of Commons at some point down the line. But, none of that ever happens, because of the other side of his existence, and that, namely that of Zionism. His mother was a passionate Zionist, and sometimes history has a quirky way of putting things together. Eben would go on to be the great uh, eloquent spokesman of the State of Israel, and the foreign minister of the state, ambassador to the UN. His mother, on the night of November 2nd, 1917, had a problem on her hands. She had a crying two-year-old baby in the crib who had a fever, and she had Chaim Weitzman on the other end of the line on the phone saying, come down to the Zionist headquarters in London where she was a secretary to uh, transcribe the Balfour Declaration into other languages and, and send out telegrams all around the world. And so she left Eben and the little, little Aubrey in the crib to cry, and she went to work at the Zionist offices to send out the Balfour Declaration in multiple languages. So things sometimes come together in odd ways. Um, Eben was a firm believer in the, the righteousness of the Jewish national cause, and he did not want to be totally passive in the movement, as were many diaspora Zionists, essentially just giving speeches and giving money. He wanted a more hands-on approach to the whole thing. Direct personal involvement. What could he give to the cause? During World War II, he served as a major in the British Army. First, he was in the Intelligence Corps. By his own admission, that was the most boring part of his whole life because it wasn't as though he was stumbling upon great Nazi secrets of uh, military formations. These were petty little details of reconnaissance, stuff that didn't matter much and was utterly boring. And so when the opportunity presented itself to get out of London to go to the Middle East, he liked the idea. He went to Egypt, where he was still an intelligence officer, not, still not especially happy, but something did happen positive for him in Egypt. He met his wife, Susie Ambachi, the daughter of a prominent Jewish businessman in the, the uh, Egyptian Jewish community who had ties to, to, to British Palestine, and they got engaged. He had a little bit of a problem marrying her because... Uh, the British discouraged officers in the, in the army from marrying local women. Now, when I say local women, the, the idea in the minds of the British is that a local woman is some third worlder who doesn't, you know, who's illiterate, and the officer just thinks that she's attractive and wants to marry her for, you know, for her looks alone. And it would be dis, uh, displeasing to the officer corps if that marriage were to go through. But fortunately for Eben, uh, his uh, beloved one spoke four languages fluently and was from a prominent and wealthy family, so there was no problem once he was able to convince them that she is uh, an uh, upstanding citizen and not a, a, a third-worlder, everything was okay. And no anti-Semitism in any of these uh, rules? Or no, no, not really. No, no. In 1944, Eben has an opportunity 
to go to Palestine, but not in a Zionist capacity. Rather, he would serve as the director of the Middle East Center for Arabic Studies. What is the Middle East Center for Arabic Studies? It would be a place of learning for potential British officers to know more about the Middle East, the Arab world. You know, the problem that the British Empire had was that what happens if you send someone, a young guy in his 20s, off to a far part of the world where they don't speak the language, they don't know the culture, but they're supposed to be part of a colonial regime and govern the place. It doesn't work out all that well unless you know something about uh, indigenous culture. So Eban, with his fluent knowledge of Arabic and Persian and the like, and a knowledge of, 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 the, of, of the situation in Palestine, was the perfect candidate to run that institution, which he did for the next two years. He was in Jerusalem. And that's okay. Being Jewish, and even being a Zionist, does not necessarily uh, have to be a mark against you. After all, Herbert Samuel was appointed as High Commissioner of Palestine, despite being Jewish and being a Zionist. Um, one is not contradictory to the other. At one point, Eban served as the British uh, military officer in relationship to the Yishuv, sort of the liaison officer of the British army vis-à-vis uh, -vis the, the, the Jewish community of Palestine. But at some point, he has to make a choice. Either he's a Briton and he's going to serve his uh, adopted country, or he's going to be a, a Jewish nationalist. And this decision comes in 1946, when he takes a job with the Zionist organization, serving as a protege of Chaim Weizmann, working out of the London office. As a protege of Weizmann, that means that Eben is a moderate political Zionist. He's not, by any stretch, a right-winger or a revisionist type, and he's also not... Um, a hardcore labor socialist Zionist out of the land of Israel. Because after all, he's not from the land of Israel. He's an elite British Jew who happens to be a Zionist. And so his relationship with Weizmann made a lot of sense. They had a lot in common. Intellectual, educated people who wear a suit and tie and who don't necessarily mix well with the kibbutzniks, with the open shirt collar. And this will be an ongoing problem for Eban over the next 40 years of his career in politics. So, eventually in 1947, he becomes the representative of the Jewish Agency at the United Nations in New York. It's a, he's a good choice. His English is better than anybody else's. He offers compelling arguments on behalf of Jewish statehood. And um, he's doing a very good job. No one denies that. In the summer of 1947... He's one of two Jewish agency representatives to tour the country in Palestine with UNSCOP, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. This is where he coined the, the famous expression of his that the Arabs never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Why? Because the Jewish agency cooperated with UNSCOP. The Arab high commissioners... Uh, at, the at the advice of Hajjamin al-Husseini, refused to cooperate with UNSCOP. And as a result, the Jews did better in the end uh, result, the ultimate uh, suggestion put before the General Assembly, 
was to give a Jewish state in 55% of the country, despite the fact that the Jews were less than half the population. And the Arabs were very displeased with what would eventually be Resolution 181 of November of 47. Well, in part, it's because Eben and his colleagues did a very good job of convincing Unskop that, yes, Jewish statehood is necessary, the British mandate must come to an end, and there must be a solution to the, to the problem of Jewish refugees in Europe, and that solution is in the land of Israel. Uh, Eben was at Haifa Harbor when the Exodus ship was sent away. Uh, his testimony, well, his recollection of the events is one of the, the important ones that we have uh, for posterity about what really happened at the Exodus. Um, he took several high commissioners, uh, he took several members of the UNSCOP Commission with him to see the Jewish passengers of the Exodus being forced onto cages and onto other <coughs> ships back to Europe. And at that point, uh, at least in his memory, it was decided by several of the skeptical uh, members of the committee that the British mandate, if it could only function in this fashion, it might, might as well not function at all. And some state must replace the British mandate. Okay. Uh, he goes back to New York and is the lead figure of the Zionist movement in the, in the waning days of November 1947 as the question of whether or not the partition resolution would pass was very much in the balance. Nobody was sure. Ultimately, it passed by a vote of 33 to 13 with 10 abstentions and one absent. But until the moment that that happened, no one was really certain. I mean, there, were, there had been uh, Soviet and American uh, promises of support, which was impressive that the two sides of the Cold War were on the same uh, side of a, of, a of a question of international affairs, but still, there were many countries that were in doubt, and Eban used his savvy at, at political science to, uh, to, to seal the deal. And in fact, the Saudi ambassador uh, was quoted as saying about Eben, it was actual political science in action. Those were the exact words of the Saudi ambassador. So, good, very successful. 1948 rolls around, State of Israel is established. There are many sessions of the Security Council at which Eben has to uh, present Israel's case in favor of a ceasefire, but also in favor of the resolution of the resumption of hostilities at various junctures that favored uh, Israeli conquest of more territory. So, he's doing a very good job representing our interests. 1949, in May, is what, for, what was for Eben his greatest triumph, at least the way he sees it. Israel petitions for membership in the United Nations. Now, you might think, so, well, all countries are members of the United Nations. Well, that's how it is today. There are 191, 192 member nations of the, U the UN. But back in 1949, there weren't so many members. There were only 59 at that point. And some very established countries like Ireland and Italy were not even yet members. The organization was only four years old, having been established in San Francisco in 1945. And so not every country was a member of the UN. Why did Eban think it, be, it was critical to get Israeli membership? Because... When the War of Independence ended, it ended with armistice agreements signed at the island of Rhodes, not peace treaties. Israel was still very much at war with its neighbors, and its neighbors denied the legitimacy of the Jewish state of Israel. And so membership in the UN was a way of asserting the international recognition and legitimacy of the Jewish state, which was denied to it by its immediate neighbors. He thought this was very important. 
And furthermore, he said that membership and the vote on membership may have even been more important than the, the, the Resolution 181 for partition. Because in his words, it's one thing to have petition not recommended. It's quite another thing to have statehood rejected. So had, had partition not been passed, all right, the Jews and the Arabs would have fought it out with or without UN sanction. But to have a state of Israel in existence and explicitly rejected, that could be far worse. So he was grilled for nine hours um, by the Security Council as to whether or not Israel would abide by the UN Charter and live in, in peace and harmony with the rest of the world. And it should be noted that no other member state ever had their representative questioned at all on such issues, let alone for a lengthy period of time over a whole day's testimony. So the, uh, the standard against Israel was, was a bit rough uh, at that time. But Israel was admitted. And at Lake Success, uh, Moshe Sharet, the foreign minister, and Abba Iban, the uh, ambassador, raised the flag in the circle of, of flags uh, out in the parking lot. There's a famous picture of him holding the rope to raise the flag. Well, what did he think about Israeli participation in the United Nations? In the early years, Iban was hopeful that the UN could be a good forum for the Jewish state. In fact, in 1952, he was the vice president of the General Assembly, something that didn't happen again until, I think, 2014. Um, it was about 60 years before it, uh, any Israeli uh, representative was put on the, uh, a pedestal in the in General Assembly. Why did he think it could be a, a safe uh, place for diplomacy? Because, at least in 1949 and the early 50s, the, colonial, uh, the colonialized parts of the world were still yet to become independent. So there were not that many African nations in the United Nations. Also, there were not that many Asian nations, member states in the UN. What was the UN? Mostly European and Latin America. And the Europeans had a Holocaust guilt. And the Latin Americans had decent relations with the Zionist movement in many countries. And to, to this day, some still do. Others virulently opposed, but some have good relations. And so, with Israel doing this tap dance between the Soviet Union and the, U and the U.S. in the Cold War, not picking sides absolutely uh, before the early 50s, the hope was that the U.N. could be a, a good place to secure diplomatic gains. Of course, we all know that by the mid-50s, that hope was gone, and for the next 60 years, the, the U.N. has been basically a hostile place for the state of Israel. Okay. What happens to Eben? He's the U.N. ambassador... But in 1950, he also was appointed by Ben-Gurion as ambassador to the United States in Washington. That's a double load. That's a lot of work. Can one man accomplish both jobs in Washington and in New York? Well, if there was one man who could do it, it was Abba Iben. He lived in Washington with his family and would commute to New York during the season, the UN season, for a few days a week. But primarily his activities were in Washington. What responsibilities did he have as the ambassador to the United States? Well, first of all, the Truman administration was favorably disposed towards Israel, despite the fact that Harry Truman himself, every now and then, would get annoyed when overly pestered by representatives of American Jewry or the Zionist uh, movement uh, for recognition and support. His heart was in the right place, but he got annoyed with us after a while. 
and sometimes he would lash out. But he actually had a very good relationship with Trum, with, with uh, Eben. Uh, Eben and Truman a good relationship, and a village in Israel is named after Harry Truman, Kfar Truman, uh, at the suggestion of Abba Eben. And he presented uh, Truman with a Torah, and there's a famous picture of the Torah that was given to the White House. Okay. Uh, with the Eisenhower administration, things got a little rough. Why did things get rough? Because of the Suez Affair of 1956. We can't discuss all the episodes in Israeli-American relations in the 1950s that Eban was involved with, but in 1956 he had a real problem on his hands because the Israelis, together with the British and the French, conspired to go to war with Egypt and seize the Suez Canal, which had been nationalized by Nasser, and the Eisenhower administration was entirely opposed to this. And it happened one week before a presidential election. Eisenhower made some unpleasant remarks, uh, and there was a bit of a double standard in that he was attacking the Israelis for their actions in Egypt, but not attacking the Soviets for what was going on at that very time in Budapest. So uh, it was a, a rough moment to try to patch over differences between Israeli policy and American wishes. Eben made some important speeches at the UN, including a famous one on the night of November 1st, 1956, in which he defended Israel's right to go to war because the blocking of the Straits of Tehran was Cassius Belli, was an act of war by the, by the Egyptians, and so although Israel had invaded and taken territory, it was within its rights to do so. Irrespective of what you think about the British and the French, Israel, as an immediate neighbor and adversary of Egypt, had a right to act. Well, it was a rough moment because Ben-Gurion was being very tough. He said certain statements that uh, no territory taken by the IDF will ever be handed over to, to foreign soldiers ever again. And that he said that Sharm al-Sheikh had once been part of King Solomon's uh, uh, um, kingdom, and so we, the state of Israel, are going to hold on to it forever. You're laughing. But that's the sort of thing that Ben-Gurion said in this December of 1956. Here, Abba Eben is trying to negotiate peace agreements at the UN, trying to hold down the fort with the, with the American administration. The Eisenhower is furious. And Ben-Gurion is making these absurd comments. What ultimately happens? So, Eben is uh, saved by the Canadian foreign minister, Lester Mike Pearson, who comes up with an idea of the United Nations peacekeeping force, something that didn't yet exist. Today, we're accustomed to the blue helmets, the United Nations peacekeeping force. In the first 10 years of the UN's existence, there was no such thing. It came about because of the Suez Affair, and it was a, a way for the Israelis to back down from their um, maximalist position, uh, return to the international frontier, yet with security guarantees. And uh, Eban played an important role in making sure that happened. Okay. By 1957, Eban wants out because he wants to raise his children in Israel in a Hebrew environment, in a Jewish state, and uh, you know, they've been growing up in Washington, they're getting on in years, they're ready for, to go to school. So he tells Ben-Gurion he's, he's interested in, in relinquishing his posts in New York and in Washington in the near future. Ben-Gurion's response is, we need you there a little while longer. You know, hold, hold down the fort another year. Finally, in 1959, uh, he has a farewell tour organized by... Um, corporate interests and the American Jewish community, that at the age of 44, after spending 10 years in the United States, Abba Iben, the great Abba Iben, is leaving us and going back home to Israel. 
And so he actually went to, I think, 160 different uh, American cities or communities and gave speeches on his farewell tour. He also wrote a book around that. His first uh, book about diplomacy was written around that time. He would go on to write many, many more books and become a wealthy man from it, which would get him in trouble with the, with the authorities in Israel. So he goes to Israel... And the agreement was that he would relinquish his positions in Washington and New York on condition that upon going back to Israel, he would be involved in political life, in, in the affairs of state, in some significant capacity. That's what Ben-Gurion promised him. Which basically means a, a, a slot on the Mapai list for the Knesset, and then having been elected to the Knesset, possibly a seat at the table in the cabinet as a, as a government minister. So in 1959, he goes to Israel. There's an election that year for the 1, 2, 3, 4th Knesset, which, of course, Mapai wins and forms the government. And Eban is towards the bottom of the Mapai roster because he's a newcomer. But he has a problem, actually, even before that happens. He gets to Israel, gets off the plane, and he has a real problem. He's not a citizen of the state of Israel. <laughs> Why not? Because he never lived there. He, uh, he was a British subject, his wife was an Egyptian. His children were born in the United States. He had never been a, st- a citizen of the state of Israel. He was traveling on a diplomatic passport for 10 years and went back and forth. But when it came to actually uh, taking up f- full-time residence, there were six months of bureaucratic red tape before Abba Iben could become a citizen of the state of Israel. Can you believe that? Okay. Did the law of, yes, the law of return, but, he, but he, he wasn't trying to come in as an Olech Hadash, as a Jew. He was trying to come in as a returning citizen, except he wasn't a citizen. Um, okay, so he, he gets elected to the Knesset, um, and he wants a government position. Yeah. No, no, he, he, when he, he got his citizenship, he got his citizenship. So he gets elected to the Knesset, he, he wants to be a member of the government. And he's appointed minister without portfolio. Why? Because Ben-Gurion, although he respects Iban and, and realizes that the Mapai is benefiting from his presence on the ticket, or in the long run will benefit from it, bottom line is there are some old Mapai stalwarts who have had positions in previous governments that are not ready to give them up. Um, and there were other young princes of the Mapai who were starting out in politics at the same time and had seniority in the political system because they were in-country. Most importantly, Ben-Gurion's two protégés, Shimon Peres and Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan was the war hero of 56, the former chief of staff, and Shimon Peres was the, uh, the former director general of the defense ministry and the guy behind the nuclear program. So they are in, uh, higher up in the pecking order for positions in government. Perez will become deputy defense minister. Diane will eventually become defense minister in 1967, but hold significant positions before that as well. Okay. So as minister without portfolio, what does he do? Very little. But Abba Ibn, a bit of a vain person, likes the idea of being a minister who gets a driver and a, you know, an office. It's nice to be on a rank higher than the rest of the members of the Knesset. In 1963, there's a shake-up in the government... Uh, and I, I take it back. In 1961, there is a shakeup in the, in the government, a new election, and Eben is made Minister of Education. It's not what he wanted. Of course, he wants to be Foreign Minister, which eventually he will get. But 
he's at least happy temporarily with Minister of Education because as a Cambridge graduate, as an educated man, he was very uncomfortable surrounded by people who didn't graduate high school, which was basically most of the Israeli political class who left Russia as kids or as teenagers and worked on a farm until they, they built a state. So at least if, as Minister of Education, he was involved in matters of learning. But the vast bulk of the work done by the Minister of Education is not dealing with Hebrew University or Tel Aviv University. It's dealing with teacher strikes in elementary school and high school, which wasn't his cup of tea either. So after two years, he gave that up, and Zaman Aran once again resumed his coveted post of Minister of Education. In 63, when Levi Eshkol takes over as Prime Minister, is a bit of a shake-up, and Eban becomes Deputy Prime Minister. I ask you a simple question. What's the difference between Deputy Prime Minister and Minister Without Portfolio? None. Very little other than the name. So Deputy Prime, uh, Prime Minister is the functional equivalent of being Joe Biden. It's like, you know, it's, it's the second in command, except there is no command. Like, on the rare occasion when the, when, the, when the Prime Minister is overseas, yeah, maybe you have something to do. Otherwise, it's the scraps that the Prime Minister gives you, which wasn't all that much. The one thing that it did include was a degree of oversight over the Foreign Minister, Golda Meir. Golda and Abba didn't get along. They were very, very different. Golda is a a, a rough-speaking American, and Abba Iban is an eloquent-speaking Brit. Abba Iban said about Golda Meir, uh, even though her, uh, her vocabulary that she uses is only 200 words, you should know she actually knows 500 words. <laughs> so that was the way Iban used to insult people. Um, they didn't get along. Golda was was very successful in her years of, of diplomatic service in improving Israel's relationship with the, with the third world, with, with the African states, with out-of-the-way places, with the ring beyond the immediate circle of Israel, the Arab parts of the Middle East, the areas beyond the Arab Middle East. She was fairly good at that. But she held on to her position a little too long. Uh, in the early years of, of Israeli politics, people held on to positions for long periods of time. I mean, Ben-Gurion was prime minister from 48 to, to 63, other than a brief uh, time in 53 to 55 when Sharet was prime minister. Sharet was foreign minister from 48 to 56. Golda was from 56 to 66. So for 18 years, only two people held the job. Nowadays, every Monday and Thursday is a new foreign minister. So she was in the job way too long, and was not very well received in important parts of the world, where they thought her to be too uh, rough around the edges and too demanding. So, in 1966, in ill health, Golda's career comes to an end. She resigns as foreign minister. Now, of course, that's not the end of the story, because she would eventually serve five years as prime minister. But in 1966, at the age of 68, a chain-smoking grandmother retired because of ill health. Okay? Uh, Eban takes over and holds the position for the next eight years, 66 to 74. What are some of the key events that happen in his tenure as foreign minister? Well, the build-up to the Six-Day War was potentially Eban's finest hour, but it depends how you interpret what actually happened. On May 14, 1967, 
the Egyptians uh, requested the removal of the United Nations peacekeeping forces. They sent massive amounts of troops into the Sinai and were preparing for war. The Soviets were causing trouble by telling the Egyptians that Israel was about to invade the Syrian Golan. Uh, the drumbeat towards war was getting very, very intense. Israel had to call up the reserves. The economy was tanking because as long as the reserves are called up, nobody's going to work. And the country is on edge, and you can't continue like this indefinitely. Something has to give. You have to make a decision at some point. Eshkol was not highly regarded by the general public. They thought that he was weak, that he was indecisive, which he was indecisive. But no one wants to go to war too precipitously because who knows what will happen. The military thinks that they'll win, but the public is very afraid. So Iban is sent abroad to try to secure international support for Israel's interests. Well, what are Israel's interests? Most significantly, the breaking of the blockade of the Straits of Tehran and the allowing of commercial uh, navigation of the Gulf of Aqaba and arguably also the Suez Canal, if possible. Will the Americans or the Europeans send a, a fleet of ships to go test the Egyptian blockade? Well, that's the question that Eban is trying to get an answer to. He goes to Charles de Gaulle, and de Gaulle says to him, simply, do not make war. Do not make war. Well, with a simple declaration like that, it means you're not getting French support. French support had been critical throughout the 1950s and early 60s. They were the major supplier of Israeli arms. So this is not a positive development. But maybe France's moment in the sun is over, and the Americans are more important. So after a quick stop at 10 Downing Street, he goes off to Washington, and he meets with Lyndon Johnson. There's a famous photograph in the Oval Office of... Actually, it's not the Oval Office. It's the, uh, the West Room. I don't know what it's called. Um, there's a certain room. I forget the name of it. Uh, where Johnson is meeting with Abba Ibn, and several other people were in the room for parts of that conversation and offer a different account of what happened than does Ibn. Walt Rostow, who was the Assistant Secretary of State and a Jew, uh, had one account, but Ibn said that Johnson told him, you will not be alone unless you decide to be alone. That's a cryptic statement. But basically it means, we don't want to abandon you, but if you go to war... We're not going to back you up. We also won't harm your, uh, your, your war efforts. Now let's put aside the USS Liberty and what actually happened, which is you know, shrouded in mystery and we'll never really know for sure who was spying on whom and who killed who. But the American approach to the, the Six-Day War before it started was an assumption that Israel will win and win big. And so they were not so concerned... Um, about our need for significant diplomatic or military aid to Israel. That Israel could take care of itself. And it did. It did. The American, the Pentagon's assessment uh, was borne out. During the war, where has he been? First he's in New York, then he's back in Israel, then he's back in New York. He spends a significant amount of time between late June and November of 1967, dealing with the United Nations concerning what resolution will be approved as part of the post-war settlement. 
So Resolution 242 was drafted by the same number of people who were at the Beatles concert at Shea Stadium. Everyone claims they wrote Resolution 242. Just like everyone claims that they were at the Game 6 of the 86 World Series and saw Mookie's grounder. Everyone was there, right? Even though it was Yontif, so you couldn't have been there. But Alan Dershowitz claims he wrote Resolution 242 while working for Arthur Goldberg. Everybody says they did it. Eben also said he did it. Bottom line is there's a resolution. And it, it gets approved by the UN uh, Security Council on November 22, 1967. What does the resolution say? Well, the key thing is what it does not say. What's the most important missing word? No. What's the most common word in the English language? No. You know, last night someone said the same thing. No, it's, you're, you're wrong. What is the most common word in the English language? The. the. Correct. The. So, the English language version of Resolution 242, as per Abba Iban's insistence, absolute insistence, was that it required Israeli withdrawal from territories occupied in the recent conflict. But not the territories occupied in the recent conflict, because the word the would have implied all of the territories. The problem is that the French version of the same resolution, and the French version is the authoritative re- version uh, when it comes to the UN Security Council, does have the French equivalent of the word the. I don't speak French, so I don't know what that is. Okay. All right. I took three years French and half there with Mrs. Delson. I don't remember one word. <laughs> So, that was Eban's role in the, the crafting of the revolu- resolution. Is the legal definition the in there or not? In the French version, it is. Okay. So, uh, what does Artscroll say? Artscroll doesn't, doesn't talk. There, there's no hagiographic biography of Abba Eben. They're just content with an overview. Yeah. So, the next thing for, for, for the years of 1968 through the Yom Kippur War, or basically through 1972, the concern that Israel has uh, in the realm of foreign affairs is to make sure that if there's a push for peace, that whatever suggestion, whatever proposal is put forth guarantees Israel maximum amount of peace and a minimal amount of concessions. The problem is, what do the Arabs want? the maximum amount of concessions, and the minimal amount of peace or no peace. So they had, they had the Arab League have three, three no's, no negotiations, no recognition, and no peace at the Khartoum Conference of the summer of 1967. And then uh, United Nations efforts and international efforts towards getting the parties uh, to agree on something. Gunnar Yaring was the UN mediator. Baruch Hashem, the Irgun didn't kill him. Because if it was 20 years earlier, the Yagun of the Lehi would have shot him to death. But by 1968, 69, 70, Israel is a functioning state. And when you have a UN mediator who is proposing something that is not in the better interests of the state of Israel, what do you do? You send Abba Iban to string him along for a while. So what is the role of the foreign minister? To function as like the state of Israel's lawyer in the international realm, defending whatever Israel does in the war of attrition and in other, uh, other matters, and to, to try to give the impression that Israel is interested in peace and that the Arabs are not. In fact, was Israel interested in peace? So, the, the, the culture in, in late, 60s, 19, late, late 1960s Israel was one of the dominance of the Eretz Yisrael Ashlema movement, 
that even members of the Labour Party were in favor of holding on to the territories. Guys like Ben-Gurion, who were out of power, favored maintaining Jerusalem and possibly the Golan Heights, but the return of almost everything else. Yigal Alon produced the most famous of all the Israeli plans, which is known as the Alon Plan, which called for the Israeli hold of the Jordan Valley, the expansion of the Jerusalem Corridor, uh, and retaining the, the, the Judean desert near the Dead Sea, but giving up the Sumerian and Judean highlands where the Arab population is concentrated. Uh, in my personal opinion, had that ever been implemented, it would have been the best possible solution to all of Israel's problems, but it never happened. Um, so, Israel has its various opinions, right opinions, left opinions, but there's no progress. And Golda Meir, once she takes over after Levi Eshkol dies in office in '69 is not really interested in a negotiated settlement. Golda um, was, a, was a security hawk and was not receptive to good news. She re- when Sadat was moving in the direction of peace in 1971-72, and he was sincere, though nobody knew it at the time, Golda was unresponsive, much to Iban's chagrin, because he really wanted to push vigorously for some final political settlement with the Arab states, especially with Egypt. And he thought it was possible. So, what does Golda do if Iban is too soft or too interested in the peace settlement? You go around him and you use Semcha Dinitz, the ambassador to the United States, instead of Iban in dealing with the Americans, because the Americans are the only ones who matter at this point. So Dinitz becomes a chaver of Henry Kissinger and becomes enamored of the fact that Henry Kissinger has dinner with him and lunch with him. So sometimes an ambassador can be coddled by a secretary of state or at that time his national security advisor and lulled into a sense of friendship that didn't really exist because Kissinger was not protecting Israel's better interest in those years. But Dinitz didn't realize it. By the time the Yom Kippur War rolls around, Iban is out of the loop. During the war, when questions of, his, of rearmament of, uh, by the Americans of Israel, crucial rearmament, one week into the war, Dinitz had to write back to, um, to Golda, what do I tell Abba Iban? He's here in New York, in America, on, on UN business, as the foreign minister, and he wants to meet with Kissinger, or he wants to meet with Nixon. He wants to come down to Washington. What do I tell him? And sometimes he'd have to come up with Bubba Mice excuses why Eban should remain up in New York and not come down to Washington, because Golda wanted to keep him totally out of the loop. It was an unpleasant experience, but in some ways Eban didn't even know the extent to which he was being kept out. He was, he was uh, oblivious to what he didn't know. And... In, in, the, in the aftermath of the war, Iban had one last hurrah as foreign minister. There was a conference in Geneva in December of 73, at which for the first time, Arab states and Israel were sitting around the table, although they had to negotiate over the shape of the table, because you didn't want to be too close to a Zionist or to a Jew if you're an Arab. You know, toy vahila mitzrayim. So, and the Syrians didn't show up at all because the Assad regime was the, always the most uh, bigoted and virulently anti-Jewish. But that meeting didn't really amount to much. And then, boom, Golda has to resign. 
Dayan has to resign. The Agranat Commission says that the government was uh, w- was failing in its responsibilities to protect the people and to anticipate this, the invasion of the Yom Kippur War. So, you need a new prime minister. But in Israel, how do they select the prime minister? Do you vote for one? No. So in, ni- in the 1970s, the way the prime minister was selected was that the, the leading figure the number one person on the list that has the most seats in the Knesset will be given the opportunity by the president of the state to form the government. And that can happen even not in the context of a general election. So if the, if the leader of the, 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 the reigning party resigns, the party will choose who becomes the number one and thus who becomes the prime minister. So there was an election of the Central Committee of the Mapai Party, of the, uh, well, at that time it's the Alignment, uh, which is basically the Labour Party. Who are the candidates to replace Golda? Shimon Peres and Yitzchak Rabin. Well, Abba Ibn has a question that he has to answer. Does he want to run for Prime Minister? So, he chose ultimately not to. And he regretted that decision for the rest of his life. Because he thought, well, at the time, he was led to believe by Pinchas Sapir, who was the kingmaker, that, Abba, if you run, you'll get 20% of the vote. You'll embarrass yourself. You won't even come close to winning. And worse yet than embarrassing yourself, you're going to throw the election to, uh, to, to Yitzhak Rabin, who is your mortal foe. Rabin and Iban hated each other's guts with a passion like you never would have seen. Even worse than the Iban golda Meir relationship, the Iban rabin relationship was terrible. Terrible. Rabin was a hero of the war. Iban was a, a, a windbag. Okay. Uh, Iban was the ultimate non-sabra. Okay, he wore a fancy suit, he lived in a fancy house, he had a fancy car. He played golf. There's a famous picture of him inaugurating the golf course at Caesarea. He, he teed off. He was the first guy to tee off. Hit a nice drive, 230 yards, right down the fairway. All right, 230 down the fairway makes you a, a pariah in the state of Israel. You're not one of them. Okay? And he wore a tie. And he wore a tie. In Israel, you play sheshbesh. You don't play golf. So, Rabin and him were polar opposites. Rabin was, was, uh, was an Israeli, not even like a Jew. He wasn't interested in, in things Jewish. Iban wasn't religious, but he was really like a diaspora Jew who happened to make his home in Israel and, and, and did diplomacy. Um, so, they didn't like each other. And when, when Rabin was the ambassador uh, to the United States from 67 to 72, he often clashed with Iban who was, as foreign minister, Rabin's boss. But it was hard for, Rab- for Iban to boss around the guy who was the war hero and is conducting policy with Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. So they hated each other. Did Iban get along with Shimon Peres? It wasn't great. It wasn't great, but it was better than his relationship with Rabin. So he was told, don't run, because if you run, Rabin will win. If you, if you uh, hold back, and throw your support for Perez, Perez will win. In fact, what happened? Robin won. Okay. 
But more importantly, we think today of Rabin and Perez as Nobel Prize winners for Oslo and for negotiating with Arafat. But really, for the longest time, they were hardliners. Certainly, Perez was a hardliner until the 1980s when he got a little soft and negotiated with King Hussein uh, 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 over the London Agreement. But he was a protege of Ben-Gurion, a security hawk who favored the settlements. Rabin was not in favor of the settlements, uh, but was nonetheless a defense-minded person who was not interested in peace negotiations at an early date. So, in hindsight, Iban said, had I won, I would have secured a, a, a glorious peace for Israel, and we never would have had these uh, chauvinistic settlers in the West Bank. Israel would have been one of those good, you know, progressive countries. Instead, it went to the right and, and, and became terrible. So that's the later Eben's uh, looking back upon his mistake of not running for prime minister. So he doesn't run. But with Robin at the helm, what's going to happen to Eben's political career? Eben is ousted as foreign minister. Yigal Alon becomes foreign minister. Eben is offered a token uh, job in the cabinet as minister of irrelevant affairs. <laughs> and as a man of great dignity... As, as, as a man of great dignity, he, he doesn't take uh, you know, lesser titles, doesn't le- lesser portfolios. He becomes just a member of the Knesset, which actually was good for him, because then it, it gave him more time to make money. He would go to the United States, he would travel uh, fairly frequently, uh, and he would teach at various universities, write books, and get into the movie business. In 1977, Robin had a problem. He had a bank account problem. And that forced him to resign as the leader of the, of the Labour Party. And that in the election, which ultimately was won by the Likud, Shimon Peres was the candidate for prime minister. It was thought, whether correctly or incorrectly, that Abba Iben, under a Peres regime, would once again be restored to his rightful post as foreign minister, which the, the, the general Israeli public was in favor. The polling indicated that they wanted Iben as their foreign minister because that's what he's good at. He isn't good at anything else, but he's good at that. He's a great speaker, a great diplomat. Let's put, it, put him to good use. Of course, the, the labor lost. Likud won, and so Iban is in the opposition for the first time in his career, which is also good. He can make more money going abroad. But he had a little bit of a problem because the, the Israeli authorities, just as they cracked down on Rabin, wanted to crack down on Iban, that he held foreign accounts. He, held, he had a, a lot of, If Rabin had $30,000 or $10,000 in Leia's account, which was nothing, Iban had hundreds of thousands of dollars because he had his book deals. But supposedly, he claimed he had received a waiver from the Ministry of Finance back in the late 60s that allowed him to uh, hold foreign uh, uh, currency accounts abroad because he anticipated making windfall profits off of his various ventures. Nobody could prove that that was true. He was just saying it. I don't doubt that he was telling the truth, but he could have been prosecuted. He hired a lawyer, uh, Yaakov Naaman, of the famous Fox uh, Naaman Herzog law firm in Israel. It's the biggest law firm in Israel. And they got him off the hook. He wasn't prosecuted. So he said about Yaakov Naaman, uh, who later became a justice minister, that um, he, he saved me a, thousand dollar, a, a million shekels in fees, but he took a, a million shekels in, in his own fee. Uh, so I, you know, he broke even. Didn't have to pay the government, he paid his lawyer. Okay. In 1984, Iban is the oldest member of the Knesset. And if you remember, when we discussed Shamir, 84 was a tie. The government was deadlocked. 
And for a few months, it was uncertain as to what was going to happen next, who would be prime minister. Ultimately, there was a rotation agreement between Shamir and Perez. So when there's no government, there's also no appointed speaker of the Knesset, which is determined by, it's one of the goodies given up by the government. So in the absence of a speaker of the Knesset, what is the general parliamentary rule? Who, who is the presiding officer under those circumstances? The oldest member, like, like the, the president pro tem of the Senate. Okay, so Eben was the speaker of the Knesset for a few months in 1984. Well, at that point, he sort of had nothing to lose and was uh, uh, more open to just a stream of consciousness and running his mouth. Uh, every time he opened his mouth, they thought he would tell a joke because he was actually a very funny guy. He had a certain dry wit. But he was becoming a bit of like uh, just a showman and it was, getting a t- it was getting to be a tired act. So he wasn't, of course, he wasn't going to become the, uh, the speaker. He, w- he was given some other post. What post was he given? Chairman of the Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee of the Knesset, which is the most important of the standing committees of the Knesset because the Prime Minister, the Mossad, the Shin Bet all report to that committee. And so he's, uh, he's in on all the secrets that's going on uh, in the various aspects of the government. Well, in that capacity, he made even more enemies. I see we're running out of time, so I'll tell you only the, the really juicy stories. Um, what was the biggest piece of news as far as Israel is concerned in foreign affairs in 1985? It didn't happen in the Middle East. It happened outside of a fence. No, it happened outside of a gated fence. No, but you're very close. Jonathan Pollard was arrested, hanging on to the, the, the gates of the Israeli embassy in Washington. Okay, so who was to blame for the Pollard story? We could spend a whole session on Pollard, but as far as Eban is concerned, he was, as the head of the, of the Defense Affairs Committee, he was the chairman of a, of, uh, a select a subcommittee that had to report on whose fault it was. This was a tremendous blow to Israeli-American relations. Who messed up? How did this happen? So let's assume for the moment that Avi Amsela, who was the Mossad agent that was handling Pollard, was acting uh, either alone or in cahoots with, with uh, Rafi Eitan, uh, and the government really didn't know about it. It was just an espionage thing run by spooks. Okay? But even still, information was coming in that the government was privy to. And who is the government? Shimon Peres is the prime minister, and Yitzhak Rabin is the foreign minister, is the defense minister. So once again, good old rivalry of Iban versus Rabin and Perez, his report castigates them for failing to um, rein in a rogue operation. Well, Rabin and Perez, who don't like each other, um, but collectively don't like Abba Iban. So how are they going to bury him? And here's what happens. In 1988... Um, the Labour Party, which is now no longer the alignment, it's actually the Labour, the Israel Labour Party, is selecting its Knesset list for the new elections. And they changed the system. It's no longer a smoke-filled room of a couple of guys or gals deciding who's on the list for, for the parliament. It's going to be open election to the broader uh, uh, Labour Party faithful which means several thousand people are going to have a say over who gets slots on the list and what slot they're going to get. Okay, so where does this happen? 
in a suburb outside of Tel Aviv, there's a big party, like a very like American style, with hot dogs and hamburgers and flags and you know music, a, a, a picnic, a barbecue, where the politicians have to glad hand people and hope for votes to be placed on a high spot on the list, a realistic spot that will guarantee you a seat in the Knesset. Well, Abba Ibn is not a glad hander. Abba Ibn isn't interested in listening to, to rock music and eating hot dogs and, and talking to, to, to the, the common man. Abba Ibn wants to deal with important people and sophisticated people and be guaranteed a spot in a government uh, driver. Okay? So he goes with Susie, his wife, to this affair of the common man of the Labor Party committee, and the votes are taken, and he doesn't do well. He's not in the first ten. He's not in the second ten. He's in the third uh, uh, tier of candidates, which doesn't even guarantee him a realistic spot in the Knesset, given what the likely outcome of the election will be. So he walks away dejected and resigns from politics. This was a shock, because Abba Ibn, who had for 15 years, from 1959 to 1974, been a government minister, had been a member of the Knesset for 29 years, had been the number three man on the Labor Party list in 1981. And yes, he was bumped down to number five in 1984 because of little petty squabbles, but still, to go from being number five to being out completely, and we're talking off a major party list. This is not, you know, Merits that has five seats. This is the Labor Party that's going to get 30-some-odd seats or 40 seats, and he's gone. So the, the, the media had a field day with this. The, the right side of the aisle, the right-wing newspapers um, criticized the, the left, saying, you know, it wasn't nice what you did to poor old Aubrey Eben, you know, you, you kicked him to the curb, it wasn't so nice. And even the Labor Party had a little bit of um, uh, buyer's remorse, because they, they realized that they, they got young guns onto the party list, but in kicking out an old stalwart who was respected by the general public, they might have done themselves a disservice. And they certainly did do themselves a disservice because Eban's fame only grew. He moved to New York, lived in Central Park West, and what did he do? He made movies. So one, of the, one series was the Heritage series that was on PBS about the history of Judaism. Very the other was... Huh? I remember it well. It was horribly boring, and I saw the whole thing. But his better series, which I saw the whole thing many, many times, and got my, provoked my, you know, instigated my interest in studying Israeli history when I was a little kid, was hist- uh, uh, Israel, a Nation is Born, which was shown on Channel 13 in 1992, and was then re-shown on, on Channel 13 many, many times over as part of the PBS fundraising drives. Five hours... History of Israel from basically 1947 to about 1988, roughly. Um, and it's a great series narrated by Eban. Much better than Heritage. Heritage was boring. But Heritage, Civilization, and the Jews. And the Jews, yeah. So that's what he does. He spends most of the next decade and a half living in New York, going back and forth occasionally to Israel, teaching at the top flight universities, uh, political science courses in history of the Middle East, and making a lot of money and espousing uber-left-wing viewpoints like negotiating with the PLO before it was even legal and before the Oslo Accords happened. So he had uh, one, of, one of his most unpleasant statements later in life was that um, if he had known what Israel would become in terms of the occupation and the settlements and the territories and not pers- vigorously pursuing peace, had he known all that, 
1949, he would not have given the speech he did uh, to the UN when requesting membership of Israel in the United Nations that Israel would be a light unto the nations. He said it didn't work out that way. So, you know, if if a college professor said that, we'd accuse him of being a self-hating Jew. That Abba Iben said it, we just chalk it up to him being a dis, you know a disillusioned uh, former foreign minister. Um, okay. Now, when he died in 2002, Kfarsh Maryahu and had a, uh, a state funeral, um, the eulogies came from all, all parts of the spectrum, ranging from uh, Ariel Sharon, who was at that time the Prime Minister, to Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, to Shimon Peres, all said nice things. They all said the right thing about him. But if there was one speech, or one comment that was uh, recorded by the media that really says it all, it was by Chief Rabbi Lau, who, came, who was abroad at the time on a, some sort of fundraising trip, as he always was, and he came back for the funeral, and he said, when they asked him, why did you come to the funeral? To apologize. What did you, Chief Rabbi Lau, do to Abba Iben? What do you have nothing to do with Abba Iben? He said, I came to apologize on behalf of the, of the people of Israel because we didn't love you as much as we should have. Now, what does that mean? That Abba Iben was never as popular in Israel as he was among the world Jewry or abroad, even among the Gentile world. He was sometimes made fun of as not being a, a true Israeli, a part of, of, of their society, because of the, the cultural differences and the, you know, the tie, all, all those factors. So, in his lifetime and during the height of his career, he was occasionally mocked and treated with uh, disdain. But in hindsight, they shouldn't have done that because he did good things for Am Yisrael. So Rabbi Lau was right. Yeah, he was the best that they ever had. Uh, and since then, it's been hard to, to replicate. So, uh, so we, we conclude by saying that Abba Iben was, if not a hero of the Jewish people, at least a beloved and respected figure, one of the most beloved and respected of the 20th century, at least in certain sectors of Am Yisrael, even if not at home. Uh, the, yeah? Um, what happened with his children? Did they become anything? Um, they, nothing special. I mean, they, they weren't... They live in Israel. They live in Israel, yes. They do live in Israel. Uh, but not, they were not involved in political life. Just one last humorous anecdote. At, at one point, uh, when I mentioned how Iben didn't run for, for prime minister in 74. In the 1980s, someone made a co- stray comment to a leading Israeli official, I won't say whom, uh, that Abba Iben is considering running for prime minister. And the political official said to the reporter, yeah, in which country? <laughs> Okay, we'll stop here.